I'm Sinead O'Moore, and you're listening to Every Mum, the podcast. Every Mum, the podcast was created for one reason, to get honest about parenthood, about the realities, the joys, the surprises and the fears, the moments that form us and the ones we don't hear people talk enough about. Which is why we are so proud to partner with Water Wipes as our sponsor for this season, as they share this mission with us and are such an essential brand for every mum. As creators of the world's purest baby wipes containing just two ingredients, 99.9% water and just a drop of fruit extract, Water Wipes are purer than cotton wool and water. During the early days as a parent, everything is uncertain but choosing the right wipes shouldn't be a worry. With no artificial fragrance, soap, silicones, or colors, water wipes are suitable for sensitive newborn and even premature skin. Together, we are committed to providing more reassurance for parents with trusted products and this podcast, helping us all take those important steps towards greater confidence while building a community of support for every mom. Charlotte Kyo is Ireland's smallest surviving premature baby. Born at just 27 weeks, weighing just 390 grams in June 2019. And in this episode, I sit down and talk to her incredible mother, Katie Kyo, to talk about her resilience, strength, hope, and fighting spirit one year on. But Katie's story includes loss too, as she shares how her first baby, Vincent, lost his fight when she was 27 weeks pregnant, brought on by the same problems that led to Charlotte's early and tiny arrival. Charlotte is here because of her parents' determination and courage and the NICU heroes at the National Maternity Hospital. Katie, thank you so much for joining us on Every Mum, the podcast. it's such a powerful story. It's a story that I heard in Tala um, at Ali D's event designed to share and support stories um, from, from, different, from different parents. Um, and it's one that honestly, I am very privileged to say that you're going to share with us today because especially right now, I know a lot of parents um, have had a really terrible time with prematurity and NICU and COVID and access and incredibly distressing time but you have an amazing positive story to come out of all of this and thank you for joining us and sharing it with us today. Not at all thank you Sinead for having me um it is a privilege to be on every mum especially after everything that we've done with Charlotte throughout the last year and a half I think it's a privilege to be able to share her story and let other people know that it can be okay, that times are really tough, but we get there. And looking back on it now with Charlotte, it's such a dream, you know? Um, I can't believe she's a year and three weeks old. She should only be nine months, mind you. Let's go back to 2017, because that really is the beginning of your motherhood journey, but also, I suppose, had big impacts in terms of Charlotte's pregnancy. Yeah, so back in 2017, I fell pregnant for the first time. And we were over the moon because we had tried for quite a long time, but between saving for a house, 
and moving back home just wasn't always possible. So when we moved out, all of a sudden, yeah, we were pregnant. Fantastic. Got to our 13 week scan and appointment in Hollis Street, went in, everything looked well, dates were perfect. It's like, this is a dream. This is going so well. And I know it was still early looking back on it, but I think every mum, when they go in for their 12 or 13 scan, it's that little bit of reassurance. So we went to the baby fair the end of March, early April that year. Something held me back from buying. I bought bibs, I bought muslins, but I said, no, I'm going to look at basket, Moses baskets. I'm going to look at buggies and just assess everything and see what way we are. In the middle of April, we went in for anomaly scan. And to me, first time mum, all I could think of was gender. Did we want to find out? Did we not want to find out? I figured after the 12 week scan, do you know what? We're great. Everything's fine. We've gotten this far. I think every new mum as well in the first kind of 12 weeks of pregnancy, especially your first one, there's a question of, am I pregnant? What's going on? Is this really happening? Yeah. So when you see it, it makes it really real. Um, so we went in for an anomaly scan in the April and we found out that Vincent was growth restricted and severely growth restricted. They did all the usual and they sent us for a walk and a can of Coke to try to get him to move so they could get proper growth measurements from him. But he was still measuring about 17 or 18 weeks at the time. <clears throat> so we met the master of Hollis Street at that stage, Rona, and she brought us in and said, look, it's not good. It's not going to happen. So for seven weeks, time stood still for Vincent and they didn't know why we had done harmony tests and everything else just to see was there any cause or reason for it, but they couldn't find anything. So we went for weekly scans in the beginning because they wanted to just keep a really close eye, see if there was any growth. There wasn't. This was also pre-referendum. So there was no options. There were no choices. So I carried him for seven weeks and after the seven weeks they confirmed that his heartbeat had finally stopped and it looked like he probably had a stroke in utero not something any mum really wants to have to deal with at the time and to be honest after waiting for so long for his delivery um, and knowing what was going to happen it was a bit of relief after the seven weeks it was just so difficult hoping for seven weeks, not knowing, carrying them around, people asking how I'm doing, and I don't even know how to explain it. So difficult. So to know that the end was coming was a massive relief. I had planned so long for this. My best friend had knit angel gowns for him because we knew he was going to be on the extra small side. So that was really, really reassuring for me to be able to pack a hospital bag and bring clothes for him because that was nearly one of the hardest parts they gave me two tablets to take and that was to bring on labor so i took them they sent me home and after 48 hours they booked me in for delivery that evening which was the wednesday so kind of went home took it easy did start to feel labor starting to come on but it was slow by wednesday evening when i went in and they admitted me um, I hadn't fully dilated yet, but they could feel his bum. So they brought me down to delivery. I got the epidural and half 12 that morning I delivered him. And to be honest, looking back, it was actually a really happy experience. As much as he wasn't here, I'd just had a baby mm. and I was on cloud nine and so were my hormones. 
Um, the hospital did an incredible job trying to guide us through everything. So they helped us organize a funeral. Um, Sarah, the bereavement counselor, she's just absolutely incredible. She really is a rock and she does this for so many women with different problems. You know, I, I don't know. I really don't know how she does it on a daily basis. Um, I was sent to see mental health then, Professor McCarthy. He was absolutely amazing. He was like a dad. I suppose we buried Vincent the 1st of June and we had agreed with the hospital that we'd get a placental post-mortem and a post-mortem done on him as well because I was 27 at the time I was still young I had a lot going for me so it didn't really make sense I couldn't find a reason as to why so they said if we did a post-mortem we might get answers so eight weeks later I did I got a letter from the hospital asking us to go in and have a meeting so Vincent's post-mortem came back perfect Nothing wrong with him, only for the fact that he was just so super small. And it turns out that my placenta had let him down. It's a really rare condition called chronic histocytic intervilliosis. And they don't really know what it is or what causes it. It's an immuno... The immune system attacks the placenta as it's starting to develop. So it never really, it develops, it never really develops properly. It never gets to the size it's supposed to be, so baby doesn't get the nutrients from the placenta like they should. That's and I was why told it wasn't picked up then in the thirteen week scan because the placenta hasn't fully kind of kicked in then. Exactly, and as I discovered, there's only so much placental scans that they can do to see actually what's going on. It's actually when they only opened up the placenta and looked inside it, they were able to find this. So the reoccurrence rate was really high. And I had kind of made a decision in my head, as much as my whole life I wanted kids, it's probably easier to come to terms with the fact that I might not ever have any, because to go through that again was too difficult. And following the months after Vincent, I did have a mental breakdown, which put me in Vincent's hospital for a couple of days. And to be honest, I didn't know what it was. I was vomiting. I thought it was a vomiting bug. They thought it was something gastro as well they didn't know what was going on it was only when they referred me back to Dr McCarthy Dr McCarthy was like no it's, it's cyclic vomiting this is what you're doing this is how your body's coping with everything I lost a ton of weight in one sense I was delighted because I looked great afterwards <laughs> but I did I managed to get back on track again I had a lot of appointments with Dr McCarthy he put me on medication which I'm still on but it really gave me my life back and who I was. To be able to leave the front door again, to go out and do a shop or go out to do a walk was an absolutely massive thing. And to look back on it now and think that I wasn't able to do that and I thought mm. that that was okay was scary. We had an episode recently with Miriam Hussey who talks a lot about integrated wellness. And something that really stood out for me was when she explained the word disease means a physical manifestation of not being at ease. Yeah. You know, your your body reacts in so many physical ways and creates illness within us as a way of awakening you to the fact that there is a problem you're ignoring. Yes. And for me, it was in my head. I was ignoring my head and what was going on. And I thought I was stronger than I was. But admitting... It's a massive trauma. And not just the trauma of losing the baby, but it is a trauma that you carried for seven weeks without being able to release 
because that little life was still in you yeah and the hope I remember my best friend had his 30th birthday the weekend Vincent passed away and I remember I just didn't want to go out of fear because I knew I'd have to have that conversation with people of you know oh congratulations because I haven't seen people in a long time and you're trying to explain well no and then people are so positive you know and they're like no it'll be fine you know I know somebody who was growth restricted and they're 18 now and six foot four and I just it was so difficult to try explain to people that that was great for that person but it's not the same for me and this is how I'm dealing with this you know I did find that quite difficult and I think that's why afterwards I did go into a depression I think and I say this to my friends all the time it's almost like an identity crisis especially after a loss because you're a mom you've had a baby you've gone through all of us you know I remember my milk coming in after Vincent your hormones you are a mom yeah your hormones think that that baby is there yeah and you know you go out to the shop to do a shop and people are asking how you are and you want you you say you're fine but in your head you're like I miss my baby he should be here with me and it's very it was very hard to have those conversations with people just even people who didn't know me there was this need in myself to feel like I needed to speak about it and tell you that I've lost my child you know but then getting the post-mortem it gave us answers and I'm like a dog with a bone so if you tell me I can't do something I'll find a way to do it. Good for you. So I searched far and wide for girls that had gone through what I had gone through. And there is one tiny little Facebook page and they're all amazing. And I've actually, another Irish mum has had her baby a couple of weeks ago with the same thing. And I am so happy because I was literally on the edge of my seat every day waiting for this baby to arrive. But she did and she's here. It's incredible. So it's nice to be able to support each other as well and have girls here at home in Ireland as well as the UK, France and all over the world, really. It's so important to have people around you that understand exactly what you're going through. That's it. And, you know, this mum had said to me pre-Charlotte, she wasn't going to try for kids again. Um, I shared Charlotte's every step of Charlotte's journey with them. And when they saw her born, they saw her come home. They were like, right, okay, I can do this. That's all I've ever wanted to be able to give to people is just that power to keep going, you know, accept what's happened. It's difficult, but you can do this and you can push through it. We're stronger and that's what we're made up for, you know. So tell me how you got there. So you said, though, after Vincent, that you were really thinking that you couldn't couldn't suffer another loss. So how did you get into the mind frame that you were ready After talking to Dr. McCarthy a number of times, we both really noticed that it's in my nature to be a mum. I had grown up when my mum was a childminder. She worked in the National Women's Council. I was babysitting by the age of 12. My life has always been babies and children. When I worked in creches, the younger the better was always the way it was for me. And I remember the girls would be fighting about going into the bigger rooms. And I was like, I'll take my three babies in the baby room. See you later, guys. (laughs) I'd be the same. (laughs) Toddlers are tough. Oh, well, I love the toddlers now as well. I'm like, up to age three, I love. And after that, when they can start to answer you back, I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's less cuddles and more shouting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
So I realized then that my goal and my ambition in life was to become a mum. And there's so many different problems that people can go through. You know, mine is very different and unique, but prematurity is caused by an awful lot of different illnesses and diseases. You've got, you know, um, you've got your age. We're all aware of that. Then obesity can cause issues. Multiple births, as we know, generally causes prematurity. Preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, prom problems with the placenta, cervix, uterus. There's so many different things that can go wrong. And I think that's where my education lacked because I thought, you know, you get pregnant, you have a baby and everything's okay. I knew of preeclampsia, I knew of gestational diabetes, but I didn't know so many people like, you know, had issues with their cervix or like that uterus or placentas. It only really comes to light when you've become pregnant. So I had a miscarriage March 2018 and I decided after that I was going to take a year out for myself. It kind of happened by accident. I was going back to work at the time and I said, no, do you know what? I need to look after myself now and my body. It's been through a lot in the last year between losing Vincent and my mental health. Go back to work, get yourself together and just relax and enjoy the year, you know? So I did that. Um, come the October that year, I was like, I can't do work anymore. My mental health just wasn't able for it. So I was working in home care and it was a really highly stressful job. So I said, you know what? I'm going to have to do one or the other. I can't do both. So I left work and I had a good chat with Kev and we said, right, okay, we're going to go do this again. So January 2019, I found out that I was pregnant, which was a little bit of a shock because it happened an awful lot quicker. But we were delighted, terrified, delighted. I remember that night I posted it up in the Facebook group with all the girls and I was like, I'm after getting a positive test. And I didn't, I couldn't see past eight weeks at that point because that's when I had my previous miscarriage. So I felt like I'd set on myself these little goals that I needed to get past. But we were going on a plane over to the UK for Kev's brother's 30th birthday the following day and my nerves were gone. So I contacted the hospital. They made an appointment for me to go in the following week. They were like, fly, you'll be fine. So I flew, I was fine. Um, we had a great weekend. I had to tell everybody over there because they were like, why aren't you drinking? Because if I go over to the UK, we drink. So I was like, no, I can't. And it was like the earliest I'd ever had to tell anybody, which was really scary after everything that we'd been through because I was nearly in denial about it myself. Mm. It was like, at this point, I was like, I'll believe it when it's here. I have a baby in my arms at home I'll believe us so we went in the following week we did a scan my dates were much earlier than they thought I was probably only about three weeks pregnant at the time by my dates I was five that set alarm bells for me straight away mm -hmm. because that's always how we've started to see the discrepancies so they said, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll do weekly scans for the moment just to make sure there's growth, things are changing. So the following week we went in, she had a heartbeat, she was developing, she was growing. So I met my consultant and we decided we'd try a range of medications that had worked for other women. There's no right or wrong treatment for this. Everybody seems to be very different. So my treatments didn't exactly work, but it got Charlotte here. They said we just keep going. As the weeks went on, I was feeling really uneasy and unsettled because we were very much on the same growth curve as Vincent. 
and I felt like what's the point we're going to get to 27 weeks and well 28 weeks we had said we'd discuss the plan that we'd get if we could keep a baby there till 28 weeks and keep a baby growing we'll make the next the plan for the next step so at 26 weeks they said that we'd make an appointment to meet the pediatricians for NICU as the pregnancy was still going well even though she was extremely small I had never even thought that I was going to make it to NICU so I hadn't even thought about that part yet to be honest I was nearly prepared for Vincent all over again so I remember meeting the pediatrician on the Monday and she was just so so lovely and she carried me through every step of the way but it was information overload <clears throat> I wasn't expecting to live with Charlotte for maybe another at least two to three weeks after that and my consultant said you know what while we're here we'll do a scan mm -hmm. so I said great yeah no problem we'll have another look I had so many scans at that point it was all the same and the two of us looked at each other at the same time and she looked at me and she said can you see what I can see the flow had gone end diastolic so Charlotte wasn't getting any flow from the placenta anymore her words of Katie we've to deliver your baby now Charlotte was so small I barely had a bump so even going in to buy nursery furniture and looking at things like that people were like you've loads of time you're fine and I was like no you have no idea <laughs> you don't understand no they were like look you're so neat you're so small I was like, yeah, because she's really small, but it's okay. Yeah. So those those innocent comments, though, you know, they they have such impact when you don't yeah. know what the other person is going through. Exactly, and we don't mean it. Mm. I think we always try to reassure each other, but it is very hard for people to understand what you're going through, and I think it's a uh, a barrier we ourselves nearly put up to say, so we don't worry for the other person, or they'll be fine, they'll be okay. You know, I think that's us protecting ourselves as well, a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. So I got my first steroid shot. They sent me home. It was, come back in tomorrow. We'll give the second steroid shot. So when I went in on the Tuesday, then they were like, okay, we're going to admit you tomorrow evening in preparation for delivery for section on Thursday. So it being 27 weeks and losing Vincent at 27 weeks, very almost nearly tipped me over the edge. I wasn't expecting to go in and take home a baby. I really wasn't. I, I was nearly starting to grieve the pregnancy that I was carrying because I didn't think I was going to have anything afterwards. Mm. So I went in the Wednesday evening, Kev went home that evening, I was given the little bottle that they get you to drink to settle your stomach acids. I was huge because of the steroid shots. I had a big moon face on me. I have a picture of my face on Instagram. It's huge. Didn't realize it's not what huge. Was it I've seen <laughs> my it. face was it's massive. Not. <laughs> um, that was the steroids. I was just so puffy, but I was so happy on them. I was really elated at the same time. So Kev came in the next morning and they put me on magnesium drips. So the steroid shots were for her brain and the magnesium drip then was in preparation for her lungs that was really really rough nobody told me how difficult that was going to be so 
literally within seconds of being on the magnesium, my temperature rocketed and I projectile vomited across the room and I didn't expect it. So me with my panic attacks and my cyclic vomiting, I was like, oh no, I was like, this is my brain. I need to stop, like calm down. (laughs) I genuinely thought I was going into a full-blown panic attack until the lovely midwives came running into the room and laughed at me because I was there panicking over vomit on the floor. And I was like, I'm so sorry. She was like, it's fine. It's normal. Everybody has this reaction to the magnesium. And I was like, why didn't you tell me? Yeah. And she was like, because you wouldn't take it if I did. <laughs> They've got their tricks. <laughs> yeah. So we got ready. We went up to the theatre. There was a bit of discrepancies with times. I think that always happens when you go in for a section because there's emergency sections. Things come in before you, after you. So by half 12, one o'clock, they were like, right, go, 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 go. So we went up to theatre into a little office and signed the rest of the paperwork and disclaimers. They had wanted to do a few case studies on Charlotte and everything else. Um, so I said, yeah, signed everything. Really could have signed my life away looking back on it. But I was like, here, I trust you. Uh, had to leave Kev in that tiny little room and I broke down in tears. Because I was in a wheelchair at this point and it was just really new. And I still didn't know if I was going to have my baby. And I remember when I was losing Vincent, I begged for a section. Mm. And they pretty much refused on the basis of he was too small, he wasn't going to survive, and I'd be recovering from a section as well. Mm. They were like, it would have been too hard on you. So I think I had those fears in my head as well. So I went in, I got the spinal, that was fine. Everybody started to come in, introduce themselves to me. There was an awful lot of people in theatre. I really, I don't remember how many. It all happened so quickly. What I did think was interesting was my friend's friend is an anaesthetist in Hollis Street. And she was starting at two that day. And she came in to see what all the fuss was about because there were so many people in theatre. Well, when I saw Aoife's face, I cried because she came into theatre before Kev and it was a familiar face. Mm -hmm. So actually was lying there in the middle of the section showing Aoife pictures of my friend's dog, laughing at how much they both look alike because they're both leggy, beautiful and blonde. (laughs) (laughs) And Aoife called Charlotte's arrival at 11 minutes past two. So it was really surreal and you know you hear of people having sections and the baby comes out and it cries there was no cry it was silence and I hadn't put a playlist or anything together like that you know that that type of preparation for me wasn't important at the time so to hear the silence was extremely deafening Mm. and not knowing what was going on and there was an awful I could feel the tension in the room obviously they'd never seen or dealt with anything like this before either so because charlotte is the youngest she's the smallest surviving baby in ireland she was 390 grams and actually what a title to have though oh stop and she wears it all the time (laughs) (laughs) what a crown what a crown to wear and i know one of her biggest concerns was their wires so their IVs and different things that they'd use to hook the babies up in the NICU and the incubator they didn't know if she was going to be big enough for this equipment to actually fit her that was their main concern but it did 
I remember they got her ready to go while we were still in theatre and I got to see her for literally a split second. It was this pink little hat that was shoved in my face and then taken away again. So they brought me into recovery. I recovered really well. I was down in my room about, I'd say, an hour later. And my mum and Kev's parents were allowed to come in. So I remember being pushed down the corridor and looking at the three of, or yeah, the three of them. And I was delighted with life and I was smiling. And just to see them all there and the fact that I survived a section, I was like, okay, the going's good. I haven't heard any bad news yet. Like, what's going on? So that evening, Hollis Street, there they allow grandparents in between half five and half seven in the evening. So my mum, Kev's parents and Kev all got to meet Charlotte that evening. And that just made me so happy to know that she wasn't down there on her own because I hadn't seen her yet. So they're done that quick second. So just to know that like even my mum could go down and see her and be like, yes, she's there. She's okay. So Kev sent me videos and pictures and I just couldn't believe that she was mine that she had been taken out of me and put into this little box and she was mine. We went down that night, then Kev brought me down at about half nine. I got to see her and she was so, so small. And I just cried. It was like a little kitten nearly, you know? You know the way kittens cry with that little... Yeah, But the girls... Yeah. The girls got such a laugh because she was so, so small, but her cry was so strong and powerful. They could hear her from the other side of the room (laughs) over the machines. And they were like, she's such a 27 weeker. Like, although she's really, really small, she's her gestational age. They were like, she's a fighter. She's strong. So they explained that, you know, NICU, the first two weeks, the babies kind of go on what they call a honeymoon period. So everything can look great and gravy and they're all fine. And then all of a sudden something will change and they'll go downhill. So after two weeks, Kev and I were looking at each other going, where's this honeymoon period? We got to 400 grams. And when she got to 400 grams, I was allowed to just kind of touch her because her skin wasn't acclimatized yet. So her incubator was on 100% humidity. Um, They were monitoring the temperature as well because she couldn't regulate her temperature. So you could put your hands into the incubator for maybe like two seconds at a time just to kind of touch her to say hello and then that was it that was the hardest part for me was not being able to hold her I actually had a moment where I was like did I do the right thing sectioning her is this too cruel because it was just so hard to see her with so many wires hanging out of her to see them trying to get different lines into her but it's not working and then she's bruised she's got plasters all over like when they're in the incubators and they're that small and that young they're not recognizable really you can see their little cheeks and their little mouth and their hands and their feet but that's all you really have so over time i continued to push for kangaroo care because we weren't supposed to be able to hold her for a long time and i was like no I was like developmentally, I was like, she needs that. It's like she needs her mom. So kangaroo care is. Kangaroo care. So we'll take the babies out of the incubator and mum or dad basically gets to hold them. So generally it's skin on skin. So I would have popped Charlotte kind of down my top in between my boobs. Mm-hmm. Um so it keeps her nice and close to me and snuggled and warm, but she can put her she can hear my heart as well. 
So it brings them back to that reassurance. Very, it, it kind of creates an in utero feeling outside of the utero, if that makes sense. So it's as important. Skin to skin is important so at full term, important. but so important at prematurity. It's nearly even more important with prematurity because if you think about the stress and the trauma that delivering a baby prematurely can cause, mm -hmm. we were lucky in the sense of Charlotte didn't have any bleeds on the brain because it was all extremely planned down to the last dot on the I and cross on the T. So we were lucky. Most of my friends that I've made through NICU have had issues where babies were delivered. They had grade three, four bleeds on the brain, which would be similar to having a stroke. So now NICU was incredible. Like you wouldn't know these babies have gone through this now a year later. After that, she flew. She was home. We moved to Skaboo and she was home within a week. When she Skibu? started breathing, Skaboo. So there's in Hollis Street, there's four different NICU units. So you've got NICU one, then you've got NICU three. So NICU one would be like the highest dependency. Then NICU three would be a step down. So they're doing, they're getting there. Then there's HDU, which would be high dependency. Now, most babies would go into high dependency, even preterm, if they've got an infection, if they're born infection and they need antibiotics, they'll go into high dependency. Um, if there's maybe issues with feeding, they might go into high dependency for a few days. Then you move on to Skaboo, which is the special care unit. So like that, you'd get an awful lot of full-term babies in there as well who might need to go in for a day or two. An awful lot of babies seem to sugar or, uh, seem to struggle with sugar intolerances. So their sugars might actually drop considerably when they're born and they might need to go into Skaboo for a night or two just to make sure that they're back up to level yeah. and they're, they're safe and healthy and okay to go home. So on our NICU journey, Skaboo was really the last step to the door. And, and how many, how long did that take from her birth to Skaboo? 12 weeks. 12 weeks. We did six weeks of NICU one, which would have been the highest level of care. And how and often was, were you in there? I went in every single day, bar one day. So after four weeks, I needed a break. But after the four weeks, I think it did just, it all caught up on me and I was like, I need a day off. Mm -hmm. Especially after the section, I really didn't give myself enough time to recover. I got up out of my bed the morning after the section and I walked down to NICU. Of course you did. Yeah. You have to I get to your baby. Since. Oh yes. And I haven't stopped since. And they wanted me to go in a wheelchair and I was like, no, no, I'm mm -hmm. walking. <laughs> I was like, I need to walk. I need to get back on my feet again. Um... So because you wanted to feel like a survivor too. Yeah, that's it. I I'm really not good at being told to do what I'm told. <laughs> so not, not a lot of us are. But she got to Skaboo and she took her bottles straight away. I was pumping breast milk for the 13 weeks and I found the closer to week 11 my milk was just I think it was the stress and the exhaustion of everything. I was expressing from the moment, like from hours after she was born and it never came through properly as it was. I think just everything, my body was like, no, this is where we're pulling back now. You've put so much pressure on me everywhere else. Good luck. So we started to introduce formula then as well because I couldn't keep up with her feeds. And at that point, to be honest, I just wanted her home. 
to know that we were getting so close to coming home. Now it was panic stations because anybody I'd know, I know, I know who went into Skaboo were there for maybe two weeks and we were short of a week in there. So I remember I was, I don't know what people are going to do now with Mother Care and Stephen's Green gone because I dropped a fortune. <laughs> I know, it's such a shame. But it was so, it was so nice to finally be able to go out and do those things. It made to it real. To to buy bottles and buy blankets and a Moses basket and a buggy, you know, and her co-sleeper. It was just surreal it was a real pinch me moment I never thought I'd get that far even just going out to buy nappies and wipes and creams I was like who is this person am I really a mom is she really staying here yeah and then there was the fear of taking her home because she was still so so small and is she gonna fit in the car seat and what if she doesn't fit in the car seat will they let me take her home you know, you read so many different stories online trying to figure out what way things are going to go, but you never, I think for everybody it's very different. What I did like was that Hollis Street made us do a CPR class and a few other classes before we went home, um, just to be sure that we knew exactly what we were doing and if anything happened while we were at home, we'd be able to deal with the, the best that we could. And I, so I was, I was really grateful for that. So I've always done my first aid. So to just have a refresher again from somebody in a hospital was really nice. And I think doing first aid on, you know, little Annie and all these little baby dummies is very different than looking at your tiny little four pound baby going, I don't know if I could do five serious back slaps on her. You know? <laughs> and what is a serious back slap with yeah. a four pounder? Yeah, exactly. Like, am I going to break her if yeah. I do that? Um, and is that how big she was when you were bringing her home? So she was exactly four pounds, 13 ounces when she came home. Four pounds, 13 ounces. I came home with an eight pound three and I thought that it was small. <laughs> yeah, I remember wow. when we came home, the first couple of nights were difficult, more in a sense of we had taken our baby home. But because she had spent so long in an incubator and in a cot and only maybe got to be held properly for two, three hours a day, it was a huge shock to me bringing home a baby that didn't want to be held all the time. You know, when you have a newborn baby and you take them home and you're rocking them all the time, mm -hmm. that was sensory overload for Charlotte in the beginning. But it was too much for her. It was exhausting for her being held all the time because she wasn't using muscles that she hadn't had to use ever, really. So it was, it was things like that. That was my biggest fear, I think, when she was coming home, was that she'd lose weight. Yeah. And I wouldn't be able to keep up that momentum. But she has just kept thriving and growing and telling us, well, you know what, I'm supposed to be here and I'm not going anywhere, so... <laughs> And you've just marked one year since the day of her section. A whole year. I can't believe it. And she's so much bigger. And because of COVID, we haven't had a wait since February. So that in itself was a massive milestone. Like for six months now, nearly, I, I, I don't know what weight she is. And people keep saying to me, oh, what weight is she now? And I'm like, I 
I don't know. They're like, but is she, I'm like, is she growing out of her clothes? Yes, she is. Is she eating everything around her? Yes, she is. <laughs> She's her mommy's girl. She loves her food. <laughs> We're actually back in with the pediatrician tomorrow. That'll be our first time since January. And I'm so looking forward to it because like that we can make a plan going forward, especially with COVID. I feel like it delayed a lot of things. So our pediatrician was discussing maybe sleep studies because Charlotte's chest is still much smaller than the average. They don't, she's breathing a little bit faster than she should be as well. So they want to just keep a really close eye on her development and how she's going. Which is nice because it's peace of mind every time you go in that everything's okay. But at the same time, it's really difficult because you oh my friends have full-term babies that would have been born in around the same time as she would have been due you're trying not to compare them but it's for me it's really good to see what the normal developmental milestones should be compared to what charlotte's hitting and what she's ahead of herself with but then where she's behind because i do find developmentally in her head she's definitely a year she's so feisty and stubborn and she knows her way but physically, she's still catching up. Like, she'll stand, she'll roll over. But we're having issues with her actually physically sitting now because of her prematurity. So she will not sit. She'll arch her back and she'll go backwards. She won't reach forward. So we're doing an awful lot of physio for that as well. So it's a full-time job. They say motherhood's a full-time job, but... With the extra appointments and everything else, there's there's always something. And it can be difficult sometimes to remember to enjoy her because she can nearly turn into a little project. I don't know if that's the right thing to say. But because she's so new and different for everybody, there's just so much interest in her. You forget that she's just a little baby sometimes too. Just a little girl. Yeah, you know. But her whole life ahead of her it's incredible and what do you hope for her life i just want her to be happy i want her to be grateful for her life does that really mean to say i have worked so hard to get her here <laughs> um and yeah i do i just want her to do whatever it is that makes her happy i never ever want to put pressure on her to feel like she has to achieve or accomplish something she is who she is and I want to encourage that in every way possible. And she is who she is and she is here because of the amazing, amazing people in the NICU. Yeah. I mean, they were an absolute godsend. They are like family to us now. It's going to be hard going up tomorrow because pre-COVID when we would have gone up to see the pediatrician, we would have gone up to NICU to see all her pals. Um, so it'll be hard going up tomorrow and not being able to see her NICU friends, all her NICU mums. Mm -hmm. They were just so reassuring. You know, I rang every single night. So we'd leave at about half seven. That was our cutoff point of going home because we could stay all night if we wanted to. But I knew I needed to look after me as well. So we'd go home half seven and by half ten, eleven o'clock, I'd be on the phone. I'd be like, how is she? The next morning I'd wake up. It'd ring, how is she? Mm. And unless she had a really bad night or a really bad day, 
I might ring more often, but it was something I felt like I needed to be disciplined with myself on as well. Cause I was like, the last thing they want is me on the phone every hour of every day. <laughs> They've got a job to do. And they're so busy, you mm. know, like when we were in NICU one, which would be the highest dependency, there were days where there were maybe 12 babies and incubators in that room and they're all really unwell. And there's and one nurse assigned to maybe three or four babies. So it's tough. They're busy. They're running around. And the environment, like NICU 1 and NICU 3 especially, were so dark for the baby's development and for their eyes. It's That itself is exhausting because you've got monitors on, the room's quite warm. We were in there in the middle of summer last year. So all I had to do was look at somebody and there were beads of sweat running mm. down my face. So for them to be able to work in that environment constantly, it just, they're angels. They really are angels. And they deserve I, every single amount of funding that they can get in yeah, order for them I, to make their jobs easier. Exactly. And um, that's something that I never knew was that NICU isn't government funded. So they solely depend on every single penny that we donate to them which is crazy. I mean, an incubator costs nearly, I think it's about four grand. So they have to raise four grand for one baby to use that incubator for that baby to have their life. It was a really big shock to find out that everything they have in the NICU has really been donated. There's so many different organizations around the country that are donating different things, like even breast pumps. Um, we were lucky because of Charlotte's, well, I say lucky, because of Charlotte's gestation. We got a discount on my pump, so I, I was able to re rent the Medela, um, which was fantastic in the beginning because it was so strong. It really was what I needed to get my milk, milk through mm. at the time. And we were given a little discount on it because of her prematurity, but it was still about €100 Euro a month. Um, Hollow Street gifted us a pump as well and our dough one like that because of her gestation they they obviously want to help encourage you bring in your milk but these were all gifted to Hollow Street you know Hollow Street didn't they couldn't go out and buy them with mm. their own government funding it's all and to think four and a half thousand babies are born prematurely every year and the main three NICUs are Hollis Street, the Rotunda and the Coombe. So if you have your baby anywhere else around the country early, they're going to come to one of those three hospitals. And those three hospitals are depending on people like Ali and Ali's event to raise enough funds to keep them going. And without that, it gives me shivers really, to be honest, because if we didn't have that, I wouldn't have Charlotte. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had an incubator for them to put her in you know I wouldn't have had a pump to express milk to feed her it's all those little things that you don't think of and I look at the parents who have had to go through this and during Covid and I don't know how they do it to go from being able to see your baby 20 hours a day to seeing them maybe two for dad to have to book in and see baby for an hour maybe once a day in one sense it might be a good thing you get to spend time looking after yourself and preparing for the eventuality of baby coming home which i suppose is something that i didn't give myself but going through that and knowing 
like I suppose for us, if I was to have Charlotte through COVID, we had, we're only in our club. We had an hour journey to Hollis Street and an hour journey back every day. So to do that, to see your baby for an hour or two, I can only imagine how upsetting and stressful that is, especially after the delivery as well. I just did make a point before about how if you have a child who's sick in a children's hospital during COVID, one parent was allowed with them at all times. So it upsets me to know that newborn babies who are born prematurely don't seem to have the same rights or treatment as a child who's older than them. I do understand especially that NICU is quite small and they don't have that much space. So social distancing between incubators would have been extremely difficult. But I do think a bit more planning could have made it easier for the parents in the long run. I think the idea of laptops and iPads for parents to see their babies is good. And I was something I was looking into in the beginning when we had had Charlotte as well. I, I thought it was a great idea at the time. I never got around to doing it in future, though I think I would. I wanted me and Kev to sit down and read stories to the iPad so that when we're not there, the girls could press play and she'd hear our voices reading the stories. Just something like that familiar for her when we weren't there because she was so used to being in the womb and hearing me and Kev and the dogs all the time. I, I do feel like that level of, I suppose, cognitive development for the babies wasn't really there. It was about getting them physically well, but that was as far as it went. And I think that for every parent, who has had to experience NICU during COVID and those restrictions that you just described. You know, I think that we need to appreciate the level of distress and trauma that that's bound to have had. Definitely. Like I look at my mental health issues now, post Vincent, post Charlotte, and I can manage and I can work through it, but I feel like, the mental health impact now that this is going to have on parents, not just having a baby in NICU, but not being able to see that baby in NICU is going to have massive effects, especially with the likes of postnatal depression. I suppose I was lucky that I didn't get that with Charlotte. I was anxious and I was unsure, but it wasn't a postnatal depression. Mm -hmm. um, but I can see how being so distanced from your baby for such a long period of time can have a massive effect and studies have shown that prematurity can cause issues for children cognitively down the line they can be more hyperactive because they're so used to being stimulated mm -hmm. from so young more than they should be so it is it's gonna have a bigger lasting impact I think than we're ever going to realize especially for the dad's I find that the dads never really get a look in. It's always about mum and baby, but nobody ever asks dad if he's okay. Or, you know, he's trying to keep me up. He was trying to go to work every day. For the six weeks, I couldn't drive after the section. He was picking me, well, our plan, we did, he'd meet me in the hospital every evening and he'd get to see her for an hour and then we'd go home together. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, he only got to see her for an hour every day and 
And I think he struggled with that. Which is totally understandable. And I think you're absolutely right. This is a problem that affects parents. And, yeah. you know, dads are, are, are suffering the fear of this baby's loss as well. 100%. And, you know, and watching what it could do to you and knowing, you know, your history of mental health after Vincent, yeah. all of that worry is going to compound. So that's exactly. completely normal. And then the worries of Charlotte being in NICU every day and me having a bad day, if she's having a bad day. I remember about two weeks after she was in and Kev was in work one Saturday, she just seemed so unwell at the time. I rang Kev a circle and I was like, she's not going to make it through the day. And he came in and a year later, here we are, you know. But it's just such a roller coaster of emotions because every minute, every second of every minute of every day is so different. And I think that's children in general. They like to keep us on our toes forever. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> they certainly do. They certainly do. Um, but I think that, you know, the points that you've made today and the story that you've shared today, you know, we're going to need even more support for parents that are having, you know, these, these experiences right now. And there needs to be, you know, as you said, like the, the Facebook groups of support so that you're sharing stories with people who are going through it, who know exactly how you feel, but also you're sharing inspiring stories of hope and good news and will change their perspective around, you know, their own future. Exactly. And I do think about just prematurity and like pregnancy loss in general, and there's still a massive stigma around us. And I think as much as we're a great nation for talking, we really don't know how to talk about the important stuff. So we do tend to be like, what's grand? It'll be fine. You're okay. Get on with this. Go on, get over it. You know, where I, I think we do tend to forget that our feelings and emotions are there and they're very much intact. And we do just need that extra level of support. And I suppose my journey on Charlotte, I really, I searched NICU far and wide to find parents like myself who could relate, who we could talk things through and hash things out because you can't go through it on your own. You really just can't. You do need somebody else to be there with you, whether it be a friend in there or a friend outside of there that you found online that just understands and gets it because it's so different. And unless you've been through it, it's very, very hard to understand what you have to go through and I even feel now like after talking to you for so long I've probably left out loads you know <laughs> there's no way to cover it all in in this time there's no yeah. way but what you've given is remarkable the strength that you have the courage that you have to even go again the resilience that you have to have faced that every single day and as you said it never ends just because you take them home doesn't mean it's over and all of the worries and the concerns will always be there because that's what parenting is. Um, yeah. But you have more than your fair share to have to, to have to think about. But she is here and she is so happy. I've seen the photos. She's just, she's, and I've, I've spoken to Ali who tells me, you know, that she's feisty yeah. and full of life. And oh. she is definitely wearing the crown um as the greatest survivor <laughs> of prematurity that ireland has seen um and as you know she was born at 27 weeks mm -hmm. and 
today as this episode goes out, I now have a 27 week in my belly. <laughs> and listening to you today is just, I, I can't fathom. <laughs> I can't fathom how you did it. And thank you so much for your strength and for sharing this because it's so important that we all, it was something you said, you want Charlotte to be grateful for her life. Yeah. We all need to be grateful for our life. And that we all so need true. to be grateful for every day, week or month that we hold our baby safe within us. And to be honest, that's something I always said that Vincent had taught me. By losing him, I learned a whole new world of love. And I accept things now for what they are. If something bad happens, it's okay. We'll get up and we'll do it again tomorrow. I do think these things are thrown at us to make us stronger. And to show the rest of the world how happy that you can be. To really just enjoy like that every moment, every second of your own life as well as babies. Because you don't know when that's going to be taken away from you. And I think making memories is just so, so important. So do it. Just if you're ever thinking or you're unsure about something, my attitude now is just go for it. Do it. What's the worst that happens? Somebody says no or it doesn't work out. And I've been there and you get through it and you come out the other end with a smile on your face and you go, okay, I've learned a lot from that. Thank you. I'll add that to my list of skills. And thank you for joining us Thanks. on Every Mum the Podcast. And thank you for raising such a strong little girl. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love you to subscribe, rate and leave a review. Share this episode across social. Get in touch with this week's wonderful guest, Katie Kyo, at the Maybe Crazy Lady Katie on Instagram and talk to you again next week. Together with Waterwipes, we are committed to providing a supportive and inclusive community for every mum. Waterwipes are an essential for every mum, from that first snappy change to those messy weaning months. As creators of the world's purest baby wipes, Waterwipes are purer than cotton wool and water and are proud sponsors of Every Mum the Podcast.